Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I am joined virtually by Nizar Hassan. Nizar, how's it going? Great. How are you? Uh, as good as can be expected, uh, I, I guess we're we're all sort of like in our own homes. We're not together as we usually are. So this is this is going to be like a really strange podcast, I guess, because we're we're using a new technology. The quality uh, might dip a little bit. The audio quality, uh, just because we we don't have our normal recording studio and equipment and everything like that. Uh, but having said that. I'm here at home. I'm joined by Nizar, of course, and we, we have a very special guest slash, I don't know, third host uh, this week, the one and only Tamor Asari. Tamor, how's it going? Good, good. Yeah, trying to stay sane. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're, we, are, we are in the midst of a lockdown here in Lebanon uh, because of the coronavirus, of course. Uh, so each of us is sitting at home uh, and we're talking over computers and our producer Susan is in a fourth location recording all of this so we have no idea how this is exactly going to work but please bear with us over the next few minutes because uh, we, we've got a whole lot to talk about this week um, starting out first off of course just with the coronavirus as of right now we, we, are, we are recording this on Sunday morning uh, and as of right now there have been 230 total cases and this number jumped up enormously just yesterday uh, 67 new cases were confirmed just yesterday. Also, since we came to you last two weeks ago, uh, Lebanon has seen its first death uh, due to coronavirus, uh, and there have been four of those so far. And yeah, one interesting fact is that um, among the people who are who tested positive for coronavirus is um, Muhammad Safadi, the person who was kind of nominated, half nominated, nominated to be uh, prime minister, or very widely discussed to be the next prime minister when we were in the phase before Hassan Diab's government. So his wife, uh, Violette uh, Safadi Khairallah, she said that he tested positive, but she's test- she's so far tested negative. But she- she's optimistic that he will be recovering, etc. But it's uh, it's um, it's one of the few ca- cases of like uh, famous people in Lebanon getting coronavirus because I'm seeing all of this news about, you know, US celebrities and things like that. It's pretty much the first prominent person in Lebanon to get the coronavirus. So he, Muhammad Safadi, the, the is, is basically our Idris Elba, and uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and and so basically this this sort of like where we are at now, we're we're basically a month after we had our first case in Lebanon on on February twenty first. It's climbed up really like exponentially over the past couple of days. Um, and and we're we're about a week now after this sort of general mobilization was declared. So since the beginning of the month, we had schools closed, uh, we had restaurants and bars and and clubs uh, starting to close, um, which many people on Twitter made the easy point that oh my god, the clubs are closing in Lebanon. This means it's really really serious. Um, and, <laughs> right. and so and and so that started happening before. And then on Sunday, last Sunday, we basically had. This decision to to basically announce sort of a state of emergency, like a state of medical emergency, is what they termed it, and 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 a general mobilization, um, which basically means that that the government uh, and and the security forces are sort of empowered to you know enforce control over energy resources, regulate their distribution. They can control like raw materials, industrial production. It's basically like a state of war, more or less. Right, exactly. Although there's a lot of confusion surrounding that what what is actually legally allowed and 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 what uh, is not due to a, a general mobilization, there there are mentions of it uh, both in the constitution and in the laws. 
but there there's there there's one part you know that that's really kind of vague you know it, it talks about confiscation of persons and funds uh stuff like that which may require an actual state of emergency which is a separate thing to be declared um and it's possible that uh this could be happening uh as early as today cabinet's supposed to meet today uh to discuss further measures uh to be taken because like, like you said this uh, general mobilization was announced uh last week last sunday and then just last night after we saw this real big spike in cases yesterday uh the prime minister hassan dieb came out and basically did everything that he could by himself without a new cabinet decree uh, and really urged people to stay home uh, because even though these places were closed, a lot of people were still going out in into public over the past week. And he came out last night and said, please don't do that. And also we're going to be using the security forces, the army, the ISF, uh, et cetera, to ensure that people stay home and are not going out. One interesting thing about uh, this whole issue of you know state of emergency or not is that actually people were kind of demanding a state of emergency like random people that i'm like you know just me watching social media behavior not really a big sociological study but like i saw a lot of people being really excited about state of emergency not excited in the positive term but kind of calling for it and saying you know it's a shame that the government hasn't declared one yet it's just a whole mess I, th- I feel like we've entered this period where uh, we're trying to blame the government for the wrong things like there are so many important things they're not doing the state of emergency is not one of them you know what i mean but there was this whole thing where actually the government is under pressure from certain people who are opposed to it or who are part of the who are part of the uprising etc to declare a state of emergency we don't need a state of emergency in this case like you don't have martial law you don't have the army ruling or whatever uh, you don't go about around confiscating people's people and their uh, possessions at this stage at all. So I don't know why you need a, a state of emergency. Uh, yeah, and not to mention that a state of emergency confers really a whole lot more powers on a government. So if they declare a state of emergency, not only can they do certain things like, you know, taking people into custody uh, or confiscating their finances or forcing them to do something, in the laws, they have a number of other powers, including things like regulating the press <laughs> and things as silly as even down to like plays in theaters they, they can oversee. So really a state of emergency is probably the broadest possible authority that the government could grant itself. And although today it does seem like, you know, the, the sort of what we're seeing on the streets of Lebanon today is looking a bit more like what a real state of emergency would look like. So since last night, we've had like army security forces, general security deployed in the streets. Today, there was a helicopter flying around the coast, maybe even more, more than one helicopter based on local news reports, basically like telling people to stay home. Uh, they were using like loudspeakers from, from the helicopters flying at a low altitude and basically like telling people to stay home. And you had soldiers doing the same in, in Hamra, just walking through the street, telling people to stay home. And so it's like they really are trying to you know, tighten these measures. Anecdotally, I can let you know that. So yesterday I, I drove north and was trying to drive through Enfe and they had like the municipal police had blocked off Enfe entirely. Like they did, did not let me in. They said it's basically only for inhabitants. I, like I just wanted to like fuel and, and they said, no, sorry, you can't come in. And I, I'm, I'm really like wondering about the legality of that. But, but what really has happened is that the government has empowered security forces and local authorities. So that includes municipalities to basically take matters into their own hands a bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Um, and, and of course, these measures aren't just happening for the general populace. We we also had news this past week uh, coming out of the prison, uh, the prisons in Lebanon, because a lot of prisoners are very, very concerned about the, you know, the conditions that they're being held in might make them susceptible to getting coronavirus uh, if 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 it spreads to the prison population. Uh, and so this past week, we saw a lot of prisoners protesting, uh, in some cases, even rioting, saying, hey, what are you doing? You can't hold us in these conditions. This is not uh, this is not right. Yeah, I mean, the prisons are already a, a big mess when, when you look at how overcrowded. We're talking about Rumi prison here. Rumi, north of Beirut, is um, the biggest prison. It has almost half of the prisoners, around 3.5 thousand prisoners. And this is like 2,000 people over its capacity. So what you have is basically rooms overstacked like with, with the prisoners. You have five, four, six, eight people in the same room. What this means is basically once one of them gets corona, it's that's it. You have a whole prison population with corona, more or less. Yeah, um, this is a potential so, disaster waiting to happen here. Yeah, and this is more than all of the prison population gets corona, apart from all the complications. Uh, basically, the whole prison would be turned into a hospital to be able to to treat them, and it wouldn't be possible even logistically. But apart from that, you have more like this is more than all the, of the other cases that we've had so far. Like this would be a real disaster in all senses. And uh, anyway, what we have we have heard from the prisoners is that the security guards or the prison guards are not doing what they have to do in order to protect the prison from um, being infected with corona. Basically, they're not taking the precautions of, you know, wearing gloves or masks or sanitizing themselves and things regularly so that, you know, corona doesn't infiltrate into the prison. And this is what basically they're protesting about. But all of this isn't resolved unless, you know, the basic problem is resolved, which is just like having humane conditions where people have some distance between them and they're not, you know, stuck with with four, six people in, in one little room. Cabinet actually took a decision to release some prisoners earlier this week, but it would only really affect uh, from numbers that the Bar Association provides uh, provided about 120 prisoners. So the decision was to release prisoners who are basically being held because they completed their sentences but haven't paid fines. And these fines are in the, you know, like between 7 to 15 million lira, which is about, I don't know, really depends on the exchange rate you're using, but anywhere from 20 to $6,000. Okay, that's, that's a gross, uh, that's a joke. It's, uh, we don't know what the exchange <laughs> rates today, what, what it actually is. But so, so it's, you know, when you're talking about a prison population of about 7,000 in prisons and, and 3,000 in, in held in smaller jails, 120 people being released isn't all too much, especially when you have basically thousands of people held for petty crimes, drug possession, uh, things like that. Uh, hospital readiness, we, we now have numbers at 15 hospitals, uh, private hospitals, that is, are, are prepped to take corona patients. It's sort of like slowly ramped up over the past month. In the beginning, there was a lot of criticism that private hospitals weren't sort of carrying the weight in this crisis. And, and most hospitals in Lebanon are private. It's just something that's happened in the hospital sector since the civil war as it was rebuilt. And many people at hospitals in Lebanon haven't gone paid for a long time, including at private and public hospitals. And so we had a strike at uh, Rafi Hadidi University Hospital, which is the heart of uh, you know coronavirus treatment in Lebanon, Basically, administrative staff went on strike uh, because they were saying, like, look, we're putting our lives in danger, but we haven't been paid in months. I believe some of these pe people haven't been paid in years, and yet they're on the front lines of this battle when they should probably be, paying, be being paid bonuses, but uh, they, they still aren't being paid.
Yeah, and, and this is a, a sort of a general problem that has been going on at this hospital for, for years, as long as I can remember, of staff just not getting paid chronically. Uh, and, and this is basically, this is not some like tiny side hospital off in the woods. This is uh, Beirut General Hospital, basically. Uh, this, this is the main public hospital in Beirut, and it's been leading on point uh, during the uh, uh, COVID-19 outbreak. So this is... Uh, the, while the strike uh, didn't affect, you know, like the, the the people who were working on the coronavirus, they weren't going on strike. But it it is the two are connected, and here we start to see again, sort of like this, you know, years and years and years of underinvestment and not paying people properly. And well, what happens? You have a crisis where at this very hospital, this hospital really needs to be on the ball, leading the charge, uh, but it's suffering because of just years and years of. Uh, you know, poor, poor decisions by the government and administrations. It's basically just literally austerity. I mean, I was talking to one of our comrades who is um, one of the workers who went on strike. Uh, she's uh, she works at Rafi Hariri, and um, she was telling me that there are hours that we, they have worked before and they weren't paid for. There is the ranks and salary scale, the wage hack for the public sector workers, which for some reason didn't apply to them. And they want it paid to them. And retrospect, like uh, retrospectively, they have lost their some of their health insurance, like their official health insurance uh, that they get from the state, uh, from the National Social Security Fund. Some of it doesn't apply to them, like the health part anymore. It's just absolutely insane. It's it's as if the the, the state is trying to kind of the, strangle this hospital into complete collapse. It's just austerity done in the worst kind of way. And there's supposedly just some like positive things, which is Ogero, uh, you know, cabinet basically decided that uh, because everyone's staying home and to encourage people to stay home, they would double the the speed of internet for Ogero subscribers. That's the official state-run internet provider. I'm somewhere where, you know, we have Ogero. Uh, I can tell you that it has not gotten faster. I think that probably with all these people staying home, the best we can hope for is for it to break even. And then yeah. we also have all these yeah. private donations, you know, b- because that there's because you know the this sector is so underfunded, or or Lebanon is already dealing with these myriad crises where we have a medical supply shortage. We've had a lot of people come out and uh, you know sort of donate uh, on like these like live TV shows or or straight to the Red Cross, including politicians. I think Najib Miati donated something around forty million Lebanese lira. Or forty thousand dollars. I'm not sure, but either way, this guy is like the richest man in Lebanon, a multi-billionaire, also accused of like rampant corruption and <laughs> the, donating that small amount. I don't know. It it, it came across this. Man, the association bit. of banks donated something. Um, yeah, six million dollars. There was a serial harasser slash rapist who went on TV also and donated. I mean, it was kind of the worst people in the country who were just like, um, yeah, I'm giving money. I'm so good. Everyone will love me now. And a lot of uh, positive interaction with them on Twitter, as, at least uh, that's what I saw, which is quite, you know, frustrating. Yeah, it really was kind of amazing to see the, these people who, you know, in a lot of cases, these are politicians who have voted year in and year out to sort of like underfund these services. And now they're coming out and saying, oh, well, we're not going to fix anything structurally here, but privately, I'm going to give this tiny amount of my own vast personal fortune so that just to uh, help alleviate some problems and get some generate some positive press uh and and yes it it seems to have worked to a certain degree but also there was a a backlash of people saying come on 
this is all you're doing. You're you're a politician, or you're a billionaire, or you're a multimillionaire, and this is all you're doing to uh, to help uh, Lebanon through this crisis. Yeah, exactly. That's a big problem. Like we don't need your charity. We just needed good policies, and uh, you just gave us fucked up policies, and now you give us some petty charity. We don't need that. Exactly. Exactly. So what we're what we're expecting here over the next week. I mean, obviously things seem to have taken off yesterday. We're probably going to see larger numbers of cases than we saw over the past few weeks being announced. And that means probably like potentially a long lockdown. Oh, by the way, I see the helicopter. It is going past my place right now as we speak. Yeah, they're broadcasting something. I can't make it out. Yeah, so uh, we're, we're potentially on lockdown for a long time, maybe not just weeks, maybe months, maybe longer, just like people around the world are looking at uh, things seem to be getting worse in terms of the transmission here in Lebanon and what we know about the transmission here. Uh, this is all also on top of, you know, a financial and economic collapse that we've been covering extensively on this podcast. One thing that we are not expecting here, uh, as opposed to, say, in the United States or something, is the government to directly be, be paying people or giving some sort of cash disbursements or anything like that. Because the government is broke, that just seems to be not on the cards. And there's also the potential for a baby boom in nine months with, with all these people staying home or an increase in the divorce rate. I <laughs> yeah. mean, who knows? It, it could really go anyway. I think we're all sort of figuring this out and getting real close to our significant others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. But commenting on the financial assistance point, to be honest, the, um, the government hasn't announced any measures that would protect people in terms of livelihood, like socioeconomically, in any way, uh, since the corona, uh, basically, panic began, or the, the crisis. The first speech and the second speech, you didn't hear uh, Diab mentioning any policies. I mean, the first one, okay, I would expect it to be still, you know, under consideration what kind of things they might want to do. But in the second one, he didn't even mention it. Um, you know, he didn't say we're trying to come up with a plan to uh, support the unemployed or release some of the some of the housing debt etc that people have i don't know basic things you know delay postpone loan payments things like that they didn't do they didn't mention anything and i don't know if they're going to do it anytime soon but we're talking about a situation with really extreme like uh, not extreme but you're talking about 40 percent of the population probably being under the higher poverty line and a lot of people relying on informal employment uh, which means that if they don't work, they don't get paid. And it's not like in specific sectors, it's all over the country. In most sectors, people have informal contracts or informal uh, work status. So a lot of people now are basically looking for, to the next you know, month or two and saying, okay, I have absolutely no way of making ends meet next month or the month after, and the government's not doing anything yet about it. So they will not be able to control corona seriously for the next few months if they don't announce any uh, serious assistance plans or, or any measures uh, to respond to that. Yeah, and just to give uh, everybody an update on what the economic situation is right now, there still is a sort of ongoing crackdown by authorities on the, the currency exchangers, right? They are supposed to be exchanging at 2,000 lira to the dollar, but that is not the market price whatsoever. A, a lot of exchanges are either closed or not selling dollars or, you know, operating at the 2000 mark officially, but then under the table operating at a different rate. There were reports on Friday of rates up to 2,750 lira to the dollar. I, I personally recently found an exchange 
that was you know quietly buying dollars for two thousand five hundred. Uh, so the real rate is 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 far above the two the official you know fifteen hundred obviously or the two thousand other semi official rate. As far as banks go, we're also we we had a lot of troubling news uh, this past week. The banks are largely shut as of right now. They've got a few branches open, but. A lot of them have uh, sort of halted USD withdrawals. Uh, and of course, most people's accounts are in US uh, dollars here. And and so banks have been slowly turning off the tap of what these people can withdraw from their accounts. And now finally, we've seen that some banks have turned it off completely. Now, unless you have one of these fresh money accounts where you brought, basically you brought US dollars into the country after the capital controls uh, were put into place by banks. Yeah, and the fascinating thing about the banks, as usual, is that they think they're the highest authority in Lebanon. And they released their statements stating, you know, the new measures before the cabinet kind of announced its new measures. It's it's such a weird thing. They released a statement, I think, a few hours before Diab went up and, and made the, the, the first big speech. Um, this was which, a week ago, last Sunday, uh, right? Yeah, which, announcing yeah. the mobilization. Yeah, Announcing the general mobilization. And um, there was this weird exchange between a journalist uh, and and the defense uh, the, the information minister who was basically announcing the decisions. And uh, the information minister told her, "Yeah, I don't know why the banks made that decision to close the, their doors before we made our uh, decision, not to kind of force them to have a shutdown. So the government does not want the banks to shut down. This was not part of the government's decisions." And yet the banks decided that it's basically the same thing that happened when the uprising started and the bank said, oh, no, we can't operate anymore. And they shut down for three weeks. And then after these, those three weeks, there was a run on dollars that was insane. The banks really um, are always kind of taking measures uh, just without consulting or maybe consulting under the table, but without uh, kind of obeying what the general population is, where the general population is heading. And that's very, very dangerous and as for the rest of us. Yeah, it was really strange because the, basically the statement was seemed to have been leaked from the Association of Banks before Cabinet, you know, announced the the the, the state of you know general mobilization or, or whatever it is. And then uh, the the Association of Banks backpedaled a little bit and said, "Oh, actually, no, we're just gonna you know close some branches and open others, but we're gonna be closed tomorrow." And that was Monday. And then on Monday they released a statement saying, "Oh no, actually, we're gonna be closed until the end of the month." And then you have this sort of you know the finance minister come out and say. Uh, no, you guys can't do this. And he urges like public prosecutors to take action against the banks because they're literally defying the cabinet order. And then they basically later have a meeting and sort of like chum it out and, and the banks kind of decide to open, although it's unclear to me now exactly in what capacity they're open. They're not completely open. It's still like some branches. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and of course, all of this just speaks to the uh, general state of insolvency in the banking sector right now. Um, a, a lot of these banks, the, the reason they don't want to open up isn't really because of coronavirus. It's it's because they don't want depositors coming and demanding their money. So they'll use any sort of excuse that they uh, that they can get their hands on in order to close. But that's sort of that, that's sort of the this is what's happening right now. But the the underlying issue here of the problems in the banking sector, that's also a really huge topic of conversation and what to do with the banks, how do the how to reach solvency again, right? How how do we do this? And on that front, there was an article in the Financial Times this week uh, that was extensively interviewing the finance minister, Ghazi Wazni. 
And it was it was basically about how to restructure the banking sector, right? And Wesney said that they're looking at a whole range of options. And those would include bail-ins where like maybe you're a depositor and you're going to, instead of getting that money back, those deposits or a portion of those deposits will be exchanged for equity in the bank. So you'll become a shareholder instead of a depositor in the bank. They're looking at freezing dollar accounts for six years. They're looking potentially also at the creation of some sort of state asset fund that depositors would have to buy into. And this this was a really interesting article. And and Wozni himself was tweeting out portions of the article from from his Twitter account, right? But then apparently this caused... Uh, somebody to be unhappy. So Wesley later tweeted a sort of denial uh, in Arabic uh, saying, no, 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 I want to protect depositors. Uh, that That's that's job number one. But what was said in the article was actually pretty eye-opening, you know, uh, and a lot of people, there, there was a severe backlash, I would say, uh, from a lot of quarters on Twitter, uh, from the nerds, the finance nerds, for instance, on Twitter, you know, pointing out things that, oh, well, if you if you create a state asset fund, you know, uh, and force depositors to buy into that, basically what you're doing is you're privatizing all of these uh, state assets and, and you're just giving them to the richest people who have the most deposits, which is an insane way uh, of fixing this problem. Yeah, but that's what happens when you answer to the Hadley Gamble kind of questions of why haven't you privatized yet? You know, this is this is the neoliberal framework of policy making. The, the question of, you know, why not... Hadley Gamble, the uh, CNBC correspondent. Yeah, uh, I'm referring to her because once she was interviewing uh, Saad Al-Hariri just before he resigned and she was like, privatization... Why haven't you privatized yet? Let's privatize. And basically half of the interview was basically just taking privatization as the self-evident um, inevitable choice and asking Hariri, why haven't you done it yet? Because it's so great. And uh, the, uh, I mean, it's known to be kind of one of the main policies that a lot of uh, the institutions working in this framework, especially the IMF and the World Bank, kind of recommend uh, to countries that are uh, in, in similar economic situations in situations especially when they need aid financial assistance from abroad um they say you know just privatize your state assets because that way you can make a lot of money in the short term but in this case it's about actually private money being turned into ownership of public assets so that's money you had in the bank and the crazy thing about it is that that's money you invested in this dead account in the bank because you wanted to make extreme interest rates probably and um, you know you knew that there was a risk involved there so when this risk actually realized we're going to give you the properties of the state no this this doesn't make any sense this like as this is ethically wrong give them shares in the banks i don't care but don't give them state assets Speaking of the IMF, because you mentioned that we also had, there's, you know, the the other continuing conversation other than how to restructure the banks is, well, do we are we going to ask the IMF for help or not? And uh, Nasrallah, Nasrallah has spoken a couple times since we last came to you. Uh, in his comments last week, he actually said we're not opposed. Hezbollah is not opposed to having an IMF program per se, but we just don't want you know the the strings attached. We want to do it in a way that is favorable to Lebanon, not to Washington. Yeah, basically saying we don't want any political conditions for it. This is why Hezbollah, Naim Qasim, the, the kind of the deputy leader of Hezbollah is, has already said that, you know, we op- that they oppose this program and they set the tone. And everyone is now, when they're discussing IMF, everyone's now saying, 
oh uh, it might happen but Hezbollah is the obstacle so Nasrallah was kind of clearing uh, lifting this blame or this responsibility off of Hezbollah's shoulders saying you know we're not totally or fundamentally opposed to the IMF basically they're not opposed for, to the IMF for the reasons that I for example would be opposed to them uh, they're opposing them because because they suspect that it's going to come with a lot of political conditions because you know, uh, of the American administration's influence on the IMF, especially when it comes to Hezbollah and how they can restrict Hezbollah's funds or uh, margin of operation, etc. But, uh, and Nasrallah's phrasing kind of supports this theory because he said, you know, as long as the conditions conditions don't contradict with Lebanon's constitution, um, I don't know uh, what that really means, except if it has actual political content. The thing about Hezbollah is the way Hezbollah is, is dealing with this here, I think is kind of like, interesting to me because the, you know Hezbollah's whole thing is that we aren't involved in the corruption and the mismanagement that destroyed the state we were like busy fighting Israel and then now we've suddenly like woken up and seen that Lebanon is like fucked and and you know like now you know we have to deal with it and so Hezbollah here basically is saying like okay yeah sure we would like the benefits of an IMF program and maybe like we like we see that we need like a foreign injection you know, of, 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 of money, basically, to, to salvage things. But at the same time, they're saying, oh, yeah, but we're, we oppose a raise in the VAT from 15 to 20%, or we oppose any sort of painful measures. And so I think it's Hezbollah, like, basically, you know, trying to manage this, uh, this, this image of itself as, like, you know, it basically Hezbollah here can say, like, we weren't involved in the past uh, destruction of, of the state's finances, and so, sure, we'd like to fix it, but we're not going to see see it fixed, you know, on you know, basically on the on the people's back. And and so they're 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 kind of playing between those two those two points: the need for salvation, but also their need to maintain their image as like the the sort of political force that's above the the daily med- meddling and corruption of everyone else. Yeah, yeah, precisely. All right, one other thing that we've got to discuss uh, this week. The, the Amr Fakhouri scandal uh, that unfolded before our eyes on Thursday, we were treated to pictures of this uh, gigantic American uh, Osprey plane, this tilt rotor aircraft coming and flying into the U.S. Embassy uh, just up above Beirut and then taking off again. And this uh, apparently... Amr Fakhouri was aboard that aircraft. The Americans basically spirited him out of the country following a, another really big thing that happened earlier in the week. On Monday, he was basically released. He was uh, his the military tribunal threw out his case. So Amr Fakhouri is is a former member of the South Lebanon Army, which is an Israel pro, Israeli proxy uh, that basically you know helped occupy South Lebanon from 1982 to 2000. And during his time with the SLA, Ahmed Fakhouri was a commander at the Khiam prison, the notorious Khiam prison through which thousands of Lebanese went over, you know, nearly two decades. All kinds of brutal torture took place there. Electrical cables, putting in people in small cages. Fakhouri apparently over, oversaw this and, and basically oversaw the, the torture of thousands of people. Fakhouri settled in the States and re- recently received Lebanese citizenship. He came to Lebanon last September uh, somehow thinking he could just walk into the country and he did, uh, but then, uh, you know, news spread that he'd arrived and, and he was arrested. And then fast forward to Monday. Uh, By the way, know, we, 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 did, we did the whole episode about that. Episode 56 uh, was about uh, the South uh, okay. Lebanon army and Fakhouri himself. So whatever background people need for this story, it's there. Yeah, so um, so on Monday, what happened is they uh, the military tribunal said, oh, okay, well, actually, all the statute of limitations has been reached on all of this stuff, so you're free to go. And they released him, 
and then he was gone. And then on, uh, and then I believe the the next day, either uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, a judge slapped a travel ban on him and said, "Wait, wait, 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 wait! You you can't go anywhere yet." But then on Thursday, we were all treated to these just stunning scenes of the Americans spiriting him away and it was later confirmed president donald trump came out and thanked the lebanese authorities for working with the americans so uh basically indicting our leaders here in lebanon uh that they were uh, collaborating to you know break the, the ruling from this judge saying you can't travel and to give amr Fahuri back to the united states yeah, I mean the the decision to uh, kind of to release him was based on the idea that a lot of years have passed since the crime was committed. Um, you know, he's being prosecuted for crimes that happened I don't know thirty and twenty years, thirty years ago. So uh, after the passage of ten years, uh, any felony prosecution is dropped uh, according to the to the law. So um, this is why they released him. But still, this was a very very unpopular kind of decision, and there was a lot of outrage from across the spectrum, but there was quite a big and uh, surprising silence from the biggest authorities, like from the prime minister and the president, no one mentioned anything. Diab didn't comment until a few days later on Twitter, he said something like, you know, divine justice doesn't expire after 10 years, like, you know, felonies prosecution, something really not very prime ministerial, uh, to say the least. And no one wants to claim responsibility. The FPM, the main party, the strongest party in government, didn't say anything. So everyone was kind of, everyone had their eyes on Amal and Hezbollah because uh, they are the parties that kind of give the political umbrella to the main, or to the head of the military court. This is what we know, at least, that, you know, Sen Abdullah, the head of the military court, or now the former head, because he's resigned, is affiliated or associated with Hezbollah and Amal. And both Hezbollah and Amal have released very strong statements condemning the decision. Uh, Amal said, you know, it will oppose the decision. I don't know how. Hezbollah, uh, the parliamentary bloc of Hezbollah, uh, have released a strong statement that, you know, condemned the decision uh, and basically almost attacked the judges personally, saying, you know, they have they should have resigned instead of doing this. They have, you know, let go of their national duty, etc. Um, so everyone was waiting for Nasrallah's speech. Nasrallah spoke Friday night, uh, and he was basically, for most of the speech, he was just defending Hezbollah's position and trying to say, no, Hezbollah, Hezbollah did not give the green light to this decision. And he was attacking some people who are considered to be close to Hezbollah, uh, journalists or analysts or politicians that are close to Hezbollah but have criticized Hezbollah for not taking strong action against this, this decision and kind of trying to prevent it from happening. So a lot of people were waiting for the speech, uh, but Nasrallah actually was a bit disappointing, in my opinion, because he said that he said things that are quite ridiculous, like you know that he got the news about Fakhouri being released from the media. You know he didn't know about it beforehand. Which there in is Lebanon, literally nobody who believes that, though. I mean that that's that's insane yeah. that he would not know this beforehand. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just not... I mean, whether, whether it's true or not, people are not going to uh, believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what basically you understand from his speech, in my opinion, is that he basically said Hezbollah doesn't have the capacity or the willingness to force things on everyone else in the country. Even if Hezbollah is able to do that, it doesn't want to, because that's not how things work in Lebanon. So he was basically saying that, you know, if our allies want something, sometimes you have to make compromises. And we can't force our our will on them. And this is very interesting, right? Because you know, who is the most powerful? Who are the most powerful people in government today? 
who was who are the most powerful people on the commission that made the decision in the military court in terms of political um uh, affiliation or political backing it's basically the fpm amal and hezbollah um so he's ba- he's kind of blaming it on on these very close allies more or less and saying you know we can't do anything about it if they don't want to yeah it's quite, it's quite amazing how you know nobody really is taking responsibility with the exception of hussein abdullah the uh, who who had to resign from his position as the head of the court, which another interesting thing, he's actually from Khiam originally. So <laughs> apparently he is not well received back at home uh, for making this making the decision to release Fahuri, but he's gone, but he's just going to be replaced by somebody else. So nobody in the higher order of things, no the Zulama, have taken any uh, responsibility or anything like that, uh, despite the fact that there was just this widespread backlash against this uh, against this whole thing. Okay, well, uh, the power is about to cut on us, and uh, so we're going to have to wrap it up right there. Uh, guys, it's been really interesting. I, I wish I could see you guys. I, I hope that everything is going well for you in your in your respective houses. Uh, other than that, though, we're going to see how this goes, and hopefully we'll be back next week as well. And until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And Tamur Asari is somewhere out there. I think we lost him. Uh, <laughs> and and this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Take care, everybody. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.